Hi, everyone. Welcome to the Natural Curiosity Project. I'm Steve Shepard. Hello, everybody, and welcome back to the Natural Curiosity Project. As you know, this program is devoted to proving just how cool and important science actually is, and, of course, to get more people to understand that rather than attacking it, we ought to be encouraging and celebrating it. So I'm here again with my very old friend Pete Mulvihill, whose voice you've heard in a few other episodes, talking about issues often related to fire protection because, hey, that's what you do, right? That's right, Steve. You know, 15 minutes could save your home or business. <laughs> Okay, so this is going to be a long podcast. All right, so <laughs> so, uh, so Pete, a few years ago, I wrote a book about optical networking, you know, the, the, uh, the science of transmitting high-speed data over optical fiber and oftentimes over really long distances. So as you know from another podcast in this series, not long after that book came out, I had the opportunity to spend a weekend, actually more than a weekend, it was three or four days, on a cable-laying ship in Singapore watching how they actually do things. And oh, was, how cool is that? Oh, my God. It was the most amazing, amazing thing. I mean, basically, I had free run of the ship. I got to watch them launch the robot that goes down and works on cables. I got to see them um, actually bring cables up from the bottom in very deep water using a, a little robot that has the ability to see them with a camera. I mean, it was it was just, just unbelievably cool. But recently, I was doing some research on an unrelated topic. And that experience came to mind, and I started thinking about the early days of long-distance communication, specifically the first cable that they put across an ocean, because honestly, I didn't know what it was. So I dug into it a little bit, and I was stunned to learn that the first transoceanic cable was laid across the Atlantic Ocean from Newfoundland to Ireland in 1858. I mean, that's just incredible to me. I mean, 2,600 miles of cable installed about 160 years ago. Now, the story, as it turns out, Pete, as you know, is the stuff of uh, sort of adventure novels, right? I mean, this is sort of Robert Louis Stevenson or Jules Verne's kind of stuff. So, you know what I'd like to do is I want to talk about it. You know the story as well as I do, so why don't you get us kicked off here? Sure thing, Steve. Well, the idea of connecting North America and Europe telegraphically was first talked about in the late 1830s. So more than 20, almost 30 years before it was actually accomplished. Uh, William Cook and Charles Wheatstone had invented the telegraph. Samuel Morse had developed the code that was used to transmit the signals uh, across the wire. The first land-based telegraph systems were already in place, pretty widespread use by the early 1830s. And also by 1850, a cable had been laid across the Irish Channel connecting England in Ireland, a distance of about 25 miles. At about the same time, a telegraph cable was being run offshore up the east coast of Canada from Nova Scotia up to the tip of Newfoundland. And that was when Frederick Newton Gisborne, the manager of the Canada Project, had a brainstorm. Why not extend his cable across the Atlantic, connecting the two cable projects? Let me interrupt you for just a second. You know what's interesting about this is that so much of Alexander Graham Bell's work was done up in, in northeastern Canada. It's, it's interesting to me how strong a role Canada played in the development of early telecom systems. Oh, definitely, especially the maritime uh, provinces up there. Uh, Newfoundland and Labrador have always been pretty isolated from the bulk of Canada, and this was one way to connect them to the country and bring them into the country eventually. 
Very cool. Yes. So anyway, this all seemed like a great idea. Uh, he did have a few challenges. Uh, first, his Canada project turned out to cost a lot more than it made. Uh, the company did end up going broke. It uh, brought the whole idea to a screeching halt at that time. But then he met Cyrus West Field. Now, Field was a force of nature. He started out in the family paper business, but soon left to form his own company. And in 1852, the ripe old age of 33, he retired. Darn it. Oh, <laughs> uh, well, some, some have a little luck. He did retire with $350,000 in the bank. And in today's money, that would be just shy of $11 million. So he did pretty good. Yeah. From there, he wandered a bit. He was an explorer. He went down to South America with his good friend Frederick E. Church, a famous landscape painter. And he returned with souvenirs that included, among other things, a live jaguar and a native boy. Uh, yeah, I guess we're not going to ask about that. Wait, 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 wait. wait. A, a jaguar, <laughs> a jaguar, and a native boy. That those that's those are the those are the the souvenirs he brought back. <laughs> yeah, uh, I don't know. You know, it was a different era, I guess. Yeah, I guess. Okay. Yeah. So the point is, he had money to invest, or some would say throw around, and he wasn't afraid to do so, especially in projects that had a certain amount of adventure associated with them. So when Frederick Gisborne arrived in New York City looking for funding for his telegraph line, Field jumped in and was soon obsessed with the idea of running a telegraph line across the entire North Atlantic Ocean. So, so this was really the beginning of a, of a lot of things, right? I mean, I mean, as we said, there was a lot, this was a period of tremendous um, sort of invention and innovation uh, in the world, you know, and, and so one of the first things he did was he wrote a letter to Samuel Morse and another one to a guy named Matthew Mari. Now, everybody knows Morse because he was a developer of, among other things, Morse code and, of course, knew a lot about telegraphy. And Mari uh, was the father of this new science of oceanography, and he had just completed a detailed survey of the Atlantic seafloor. I mean, his survey basically confirmed that there's a pretty broad and very shallow or relatively shallow plateau in the area between the two continents that would be perfect for laying a telegraph cable. In fact, you know, it's, it's, it's funny, Pete, um, in my research as I was digging into this a little bit, I may have told you this story. Think about this for a second. This guy did a global survey of the Atlantic seafloor. Now, the way he did this was he sailed all over the Atlantic with ropes with weights on the bottom of it, and he had knots tied in the rope. So he would basically drop these ropes overboard, counting the knots all until they hit the bottom, and then he'd know how deep the water was. Now, we're talking thousands and thousands of feet of water, right? So you can imagine, I mean, how long this must have taken for him to do this. It's just incredible. Oh, uh, astounding. And you're only doing a point every now and then. You're, you're not really getting an idea of like a side scan sonar that we have these days and kind of take for granted. Yeah. He's just doing individual points Absolutely. and trying to get a topographic map developed out of that. Absolutely right. So who knows what he missed along the way, right? Exactly. So... So basically between Newfoundland and Ireland, the distance was about 1,600 miles. And, and if you look at the bottom of the ocean between the two places, we have this plateau, which, which according to the people that were there, 
seem to have been placed especially for the purpose of holding or supporting the cable of a submarine telegraph and keeping it out of harm's way. And so, so when he described it, he said, it's neither too deep nor too shallow, yet it is so deep that the wires once landed will remain forever beyond the reach of vessels, anchors, icebergs, and drifts of any kind, and so shallow that the wires may be readily lodged upon the bottom. Now, I don't pretend to consider the question as to the possibility of finding a time calm enough, the sea smooth enough, a wire long enough, a ship big enough, to lay a coil of wire 1,600 miles in length, though I have no fear, but that the enterprise and ingenuity of the age, whenever called on with these problems, will be ready with a satisfactory and practical solution of them. Pretty flowery speech, but as it turned out, he was right. And geographically, he was correct. There is a plateau down there. Now, what he didn't take into account, or maybe he did, with his comment about the possibility of finding a time calm enough or a sea smooth enough, was the ferocity of the North Atlantic and the tendency that that North Atlantic has to savage ships and we'll see that in just a few minutes. So Field goes off to England to look for funding. His reputation along with his own fortune helped a lot as did the fact that by this time Morse had proven using land-based circuits that were connected together in a sort of a daisy chain that signals could easily be transmitted over a 2,000 mile circuit. So in 1856 the money was committed and the Atlantic Telegraph Company was founded. Those had to be some pretty exciting times, Steve. Oh, yeah. Oh, you can imagine. Once Field and Gisborne had their money, the next step was to kick off the actual building project. Now, remember the time frame we're talking about here. It's 1858. The U.S. Civil War is still three years away from starting. John Brown has organized his raid on uh, the arsenal at Harper's Ferry. And Sir Richard Burton and John Speak explored for the first time the mysterious unknown region around Lake Tanganyika in East Africa. Minnesota was just admitted as the 32nd state in the Union, and Abraham Lincoln made his famous proclamation that a house divided against itself cannot stand. Regular mail, overland mail, to California began that year, and Macy's department store opened in New York City. Gimbals would come shortly thereafter. So my point is that this was a long time ago. The Industrial Revolution was really just beginning, yet Field, Gisborne, and their investors felt that they had the capability to take on such a risky, complex, and difficult project. Just think about that for a yeah. second, right? I mean, I have trouble making my printer work. <laughs> <laughs> and I'm thinking about, I mean, the, the little historical moments that you, you mentioned there. I mean, this is before the Civil War. Um, the, the country isn't isn't whole yet. Abraham Lincoln is still in office. Um, you know, mail is just starting. We're just now getting department stores, and these folks are going to build a twenty six hundred mile cable across the ocean. I mean, it's just it's just staggering to me. It's amazing the foresight that they had to have, knowing that this was needed at that point in time, uh, was amazing. Not too many people think that far ahead. Well, you're not kidding, especially today. It's amazing. Yep. So anyway, the first thing they had to do was make a cable 2,600 miles in length. Now, keep in mind, that's the distance from New York to L.A., and they had to build it, it being a strong, waterproof electrical cable that could withstand the rigors of being dropped into 12,000 feet of water with 1850s technology. And you know what? They did it. Piece of cake. So here, yeah, piece of cake. Well, not exactly a piece of cake. Uh, maybe a piece of pie uh, thrown in. So here's how it went. 
uh, first, the design of the cable. Now, they did have a couple short undersea uh, cables to build on for experience. Uh, the cable did consist of seven strands of copper wire twisted together, insulated by three layers of gutta percha, a form of natural rubber. Uh, by the way, gutta percha is what they fill your hollow tooth with after you've had a root canal, so huh. it's still around. Huh. Anyway, the twisted copper strands were then covered with tar-coated hemp and then armored with 18 strands of twisted iron wire, uh, mainly to armor, armor the cable so it protected it physically. The final cable was five-eighths of an inch thick. It weighed one ton per mile which meant that the overall cable weighed 2,500 tons, 5 million pounds, far more than any single ship of the time could carry. Right. So we've got this cable that's covered with these iron wires to make sure that if somebody drops an anchor on it or something falls overboard, it won't crush the thing. But we're talking about a 5 million pound, essentially, wheel of cable. And as you said, there's no ship in the world that could carry that. So once the word got out that the project is underway, all these suggestions began to pour in. <laughs> this just cracks me up. One person suggests the cable should be suspended by underwater balloons to make it easier to reach in case it needs a repair. And another one, and this is the one I love, this other person wanted the design to include floating call boxes so that, so that ships could pull over in the middle of the ocean <laughs> and make a telephone call if they wanted to. <laughs> Oh, you know, maybe E.T. was on board. Who knows? <laughs> yeah, exactly. The number you have reached. Anyway, uh, thankfully, you know, somewhat more scientifically rigorous minds got involved in the project. One of them was a guy named William Thompson, who a lot of us know as Lord Kelvin. Now, this guy was a pretty distinguished scientist of the time, and he brought his considerable knowledge to the project, which was kind of important, if for no other reason than to counteract the efforts of a guy named... Dr. Edward Orange Wildman Whitehouse. Now, that, that's somebody whose parents didn't like him when he was born. Uh, yeah, I think so. Like that? Are you kidding? I know, I know. Orange Wildman Whitehouse. But isn't that what we have today? Don't we have an orange wild man in the White House? Yes. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> anyway, this guy Whitehouse had been hired as the company's electrician. I mean, you know, the name alone should have caused him to think twice, right? The thing is, Whitehouse was a doctor. He was a physician, but he was also an amateur electrician. Now, why they hired him to manage this project is absolutely beyond me because some of his beliefs about electricity were just plain wrong, and we'll see sort of a demonstration of that a bit later on when we see how his misconceptions actually resulted in burning out the newly installed cable. So, oops. Yeah, I know. He, he, he also believed that a smaller conductor was better than a larger conductor, and that, unfortunately, violates an electrical concept called skin effect, which explains that uh, basically an electrical charge that's moving down a conductor actually travels on the surface or the skin of the conductor, and so the larger the surface area of the conductor, in other words, the more skin there is to travel on, then you know, the lower the resistance to the charge. And that's one of the reasons we use stranded wire in a lot of applications today, because the combined surface area of all those individual strands co constitutes much more, you know, much more surface area. And therefore, yep. you, know, you're, you, can, you can transmit more. But the problem is, good old White House didn't understand that. Thompson did. I mean, his law of squares sort of lent itself to exactly that problem. He said that the speed of a transmitted message decreases with the square of its length. And that became really important when we started talking about a 2,600-mile cable. You know, how long would it take a message to get across? Well, a long time, as it turns out. 
So when they finally got the cable working, in fact, uh, President Buchanan and Queen Victoria exchanged messages with each other. The Queen's message said, The Queen desires to congratulate the President upon the successful completion of his great international work in which the Queen has taken the greatest interest. The Queen is convinced that the President will join with her in fervently hoping that the electrical cable, which now already connects Great Britain with the United States, will prove an additional link between the two nations, whose friendship is founded upon their common interest and reciprocal esteem. The Queen has much pleasure in thus directly communicating with the President and in renewing to him her best wishes for the prosperity of the United States. Now, that's pretty flowery speech, but Buchanan's, as it turned out, was equally long and quite a bit more flowery. It is a triumph more glorious because far more useful to mankind than was ever won by conqueror on the field of battle. May the Atlantic Telegraph, under the blessing of heaven, prove to be a bond of perpetual peace and friendship between the kindred nations, and an instrument destined by divine providence to diffuse religion, civilization, liberty, and law throughout the world. Holy moly. Now, Steve, it took you about, what, a minute to say both messages there? Yeah, yeah something like that. Right. Back then, those 63 words took 17 hours and 40 minutes to transmit. Not because <laughs> the telegrapher was, you know, slow or anything, but the average speed of the original cable uh, was two minutes and five seconds per character. Per character, now, per letter. Character, per letter. <laughs> and, and that includes punctuation, and, right? Oh, yeah. Now, compare that with the new optical cable that Google just installed between the U.S. and Japan. It transmits at 480 terabits per second. That's 480 with 12 zeros after it. And that's a bit more than telegraph cable, which transmitted at what calculates out to be 0.048 bits per second. Uh, yeah, that's, yeah. <laughs> By the way, telegraphy on landlines around this time was significantly faster, and they were commercially successful primarily for the rapid transmission of many short messages or even longer ones. Good example of a long telegraph, in 1864, the Territory of Nevada sent by mail to Washington, D.C., two copies of its state constitution approved by voters and as part of the requirement for admission to the Union. One went by Overland Mail snail mail, uh -huh. as we would know, now call it. Another went even slower. It went by ship around the tip of South America. After one month, Washington had received the canvas of votes, but did not get either copy of the Constitution. <laughs> Lost in the mail, you know? Yeah. Yeah, now Secretary of State William Seward, he was very eager to see Nevada become a state, as was President Lincoln. But Secretary of the Treasury, William Pitt Fessenden, was cautious as to what may be in the Constitution. He didn't want any last-minute things, you know, stuck in there that they didn't know about. Yeah. So with the mail documents failing to arrive, Territorial Governor James Nye had the Constitution telegraphed to Washington, all 16,543 words. In 1864, the price to the territory was $4,303.27. Holy cow. According to the Carson Post, the local newspaper of the day in the state in the territorial capital, it took two experienced telegraphers 12 hours to transmit the document. So large documents can go a lot faster than the Queen and the President 
uh, messages were exchanged. Uh, two days later, President Lincoln was holding 175 pages of transcribed pages in his hands. Nevada was proclaimed the state another two days later, just in time for the federal election the following week, where Lincoln was reelected. So did the, did the paper versions ever arrive? Were they still in transit? <laughs> uh, apparently one of them did, because there is a uh, copy of it in the uh, Library of Congress. However, one of them never showed up, and I'm not quite sure which one actually made it. I wouldn't be surprised if the one that went by ship was more reliable. Unbelievable. I mean, that's just unbelievable. Well, I, I guess what matters here is that even with the limitations of technology in the 1850s, they still managed to construct a functioning 2,600-mile cable. And once they did, they were ready to drop it in the ocean. So the U.S. and Great Britain each offered up a big warship to make it happen. I mean, these were, these were the biggest ships they had in the fleet. Because remember, there were no ships big enough to carry all the cables, so it had to be divided between two different vessels. So the USA gave up the USS Niagara, and the U.K. gave us the Agamemnon. Now, both ships had to be radically modified to carry the cable that was necessary to do the installation. Their holds were enlarged significantly, cable tanks were installed, and in the case of the Agamemnon, the deck was reinforced to carry 250 tons of cable that wouldn't fit in the cable tanks below decks with the other 1,300 tons of cable. What could possibly go wrong, right? So, uh, yeah. <laughs> right? Let's, you know, let's go out into the North Atlantic on a ship that is impossibly top-heavy, right? Well, two other ships, the Susquehanna and the Leopard, joined the operation as sort of escorts or, you know, helper vessels, if you will. So, so or, on, or rescue ships, or, right? Yeah, as it turns out, rescue ships, right. So, so under the plan, the Niagara would lay her entire 1,250 miles of cable starting in Ireland and sailing west toward Canada. The Agamemnon would then meet her in mid-ocean and splice her half of the cable to what was already lying on the seabed and then continue laying cable all the way to Newfoundland. Now, let's remember that this is taking place in the North Atlantic, which, you know, with the possible exception of the Drake Passage between South America and Antarctica, has the worst the most unpredictable weather in the world. And the ship captains knew that their plan would work unless they ran into bad weather, in which case it was possible that the cable was already lying on the seafloor and anything that was already down there would be lost. Now that's precisely what happened. The first break happened five miles into the voyage. But they managed to pull it up, repair it, and move on. But as it turns out, that very first break was a harbinger of what was yet to come. So. The Niagara continued onward, laying cable. And about 200 miles offshore, they began to hit deep water, which means that they were laying cable in 2,000 fathoms. That's about 12,000 feet. So on the morning of the fourth day, the cable just went dead. You see, all along the way, they've been testing it electrically to make sure that they can send a signal down one wire and back on the other conductor. So it went dead temporarily for several hours. There was no explanation. And then it just mysteriously started working again. So they shrugged their shoulders and just kept on going. The next day, as they tried to slow the cable down as it was leaving the ship, it snapped. Now, there's Ooh. no, yeah, yeah, oops, right? There's no way to fish up a cable in 12,000 feet of water in those days. So they basically just abandoned the effort and went back to the UK. They offloaded the 2,200 miles of cable they still had, piled it on the dock, and just left it for the year to come. Meanwhile, Thompson started looking at this stuff and saying, all right, we got to make some engineering changes here if we're going to correct the problems that, that you know, we've just experienced. So 
When spring came, the two ships, the Niagara and the Agamemnon, headed out once again, but this time they had a different plan. They decided to start in the middle of the Atlantic instead of Ireland. And then they would splice their cable segments together, and then each ship would lay cable moving in opposite directions, one headed for the UK, one headed for Canada. So off they went, and four days into the voyage, they hit the worst storm ever recorded in the North Atlantic. I mean, this is just incredible to me. Look at all the technology they've designed. They've got these amazing ships. They're meeting in the middle of the ocean, but apparently their weather prediction skills aren't all that good. <laughs> no. Yeah, Mother Nature will uh, assert herself at the most inopportune time, right? Yeah. Yeah, you'd think they would have been watching the Weather Channel, but whatever. Anyway, before too long, the Agamemnon, remember the Agamemnon? This is the one that has all the cables stacked up on the deck. Um, she was in real trouble. Because of her size, remember she had all that cable up there, and that made her top-heavy. And in fact, here's an entry from the ship's log. I love this. The massive beams under her upper deck coil cracked and snapped with a noise resembling that of small artillery, almost drowning the hideous roar of the wind as it moaned and howled through the rigging. Those in the improvised cabins on the main deck had little sleep that night, for the upper deck planks above them were working themselves free, as sailors say, for they groaned under the pressure of the coil and availed themselves of the opportunity to let in a little light with a good deal of water at every roll. The sea, too, kept striking with dull, heavy violence against the ship's bows, forcing its way through hawse holes and ill-closed ports with a heavy slush. And then... Hissing and winding aft, it roused the occupants of the cabins aforesaid to a knowledge that their floors were underwater, and that the flotsam and jetsam noises they heard beneath were only caused by their outfit for the voyage taking a cruise of its own in some five or six inches of dirty bilge. Such was Sunday night, and such was a fair average of all the nights throughout the week, varying only from bad to worse. And on Monday, things became desperate. I mean, things became desperate? Weren't they all? This was. I mean, I mean, I mean, Sunday was pretty desperate as far as I can tell. Yes. Anyway, he goes on and says the upper deck coil had strained the ship to the very utmost, yet it still held on fast, but not so for the coil in the main hold. This had begun to get adrift, and the top kept working and shifting over from side to side as the ship lurched until some forty or fifty miles were in a hopeless state of tangle, resembling nothing so much as a cargo. Of live eels. Ooh. <laughs> yeah, what an image, right? But all things have an end, and this long gale of over a week's duration at last blew itself out, and the weary ocean rocked itself to rest. Throughout the whole of Monday, the Agamemnon ran before the wind, which moderated so much that at 4 a.m. on Tuesday, her head was once more put about, and for the second time, she commenced beating up for the rendezvous. As we approached the place of meeting, the angry sea went down. In the afternoon, the Niagara came in from the north, and at eventide, the Gorgon from the south, and then, almost for the first time since starting, the squadron was reunited near the point where the great work was to have commenced 15 days previously, as tranquil in the middle of the Atlantic as if in Plymouth Sound. Holy sure. cow. They should have just stayed home for an extra two weeks. And, yeah. They would have been no fine. <laughs> So anyway, the storm does pass, and even after the incredible abuse that the ships took, they meet, they splice their cables together. Three miles later, guess what? The cable snaps. Again. They splice it. 80 miles later, it snaps again. <laughs> 200 miles, 
it snaps again. And the third time, it caused the cable to once again be lost on the ball. That was the last straw. They couldn't find it. They headed back to port. Now, at some point, you'd think they would just quit. But remember our uh, hero here? He's an adventurer, and he's not going to give up the ship (laughs) or the cable. They had every intention of finishing what they started. Field and Gisborne managed to convince the board of directors to make one more attempt. They agreed, and on Tuesday, August 5th, they completed yet another cable across the Atlantic. They had some initial problems, and it took a week before they could transmit the first real message. Thompson wanted to use low-voltage batteries for signaling because he knew better. But White House, uh, remember him? Yeah, our doctor, doctor right? Aspirating yeah. as an electrician. <laughs> uh-huh. Uh-huh. He insisted on using two huge 2,000-volt uh, spark coils. Oh, good. So the Queen of England and the President of the U.S. were able to exchange messages with each other. But on September 1st, the cable failed, this time permanently burned out due to White House's insistence on high voltage. He basically fried the cable. Right. And the two continents were once again isolated. Unbelievable. I mean, just Uh, unbelievable. Yeah. Well, hope springs eternal, as they say, and by May of 1865, they completed a new cable. And based on what they learned from the previous expedition, this new cable was three times bigger than its predecessor. It was an inch in diameter, and it weighed one and three quarters tons per mile, which means that the entire cable weighed 7,000 tons. By this time, the only ship in the world that could carry it was a massive ship called the Great Eastern. It was 700 feet long, five times the size of any other ship in the world. Uh, the ship had six masts and five smokestacks. It had 58-foot diameter side paddle wheels and a 24-foot diameter propeller. I mean, this thing was a monster. The planners took their time preparing for the project, and they provisioned the ship for every possible outcome, including some that were just plain weird. When the Great Eastern left port, not only did she carry the 7,000 tons of cable and 8,000 tons of coal and 500 crew members, she also carried what I can only describe as a farm. (laughs) She had 12 oxen, a cow, 20 pigs, 120 sheep, and dozens of chickens. I, I, I can't begin to tell you <laughs> what this was all about. Well, I, I guess they were going to grow their own food. Uh, yeah, apparently. I, yeah, whatever. Well, on J- July 23rd of 1865, the journey begins, but 84 miles out, they detect a fault, an electrical fault in the cable. It just stopped conducting. And what that meant was they had to then backtrack and find the fault in the cable that was already in the water. The problem was they couldn't pull it back aboard by reversing the vessel and sailing backwards because the big paddle wheels on the side of the ship were in the way. So what they had to do was they had to cut the cable and then attach one end of it to the ship and then walk that back 700 feet down the ship around the paddle wheels to the bow of the boat. It took them 10 hours to find the fault, but it turned out to be a piece of iron wire that somehow got driven through the cable probably an act of sabotage, although I don't think they ever really figured that out. So they fixed it and started again, and a half a mile later, another fault occurred. Then it mysteriously cleared, sort of like that time we heard about a few minutes ago. On the afternoon of the seventh day, 800 miles into the journey, another fault was detected. This one took them 19 hours to find and fix, and again, it turned out to be a piece of wire that had been driven through the cable, which is really weird. Now, 
By August the 2nd, three quarters of the job was done. Perfect electrical signals were coming in, and then without warning, nothing. The line went dead. The signals disappeared, and to the listeners in Canada and Ireland, so did the fleet, at least temporarily. They lost all contact with them. What had happened, though, was that aboard the Great Eastern, they found yet another wire driven through the cable, and so they cut the cable to deal with it. But that meant that they had to fish the cable up from 2,000 fathoms using a grappling hook on the end of a rope. Now, think about that for a second, all right? In 1865, that was the technology they had. They didn't have a remote robot. They didn't have sonar. They had a hook on a rope. And remember, this cable weighs one and three quarters tons per mile, which means that they're trying to pull up, you know, at the very least about 10,000 pounds of cable to, to, you know, to fix it. I mean, just think about that. Because, you know, you're, you're in 12,000 feet of water. That's two miles of water. You know, that's a lot yeah. of weight, right? Well, they tried and they tried, and even though they snagged it a couple of times, they finally gave up and they tried a different approach. They moved into shallower water, and then they tried again, and they, and they sort of finally, after about 30 attempts, they finally snagged it. They managed to get it aboard. They moved to the area that was broken. They repaired it. And then finally, at the end of August, they succeeded completing the installation. The Great Eastern then turned around and laid a second cable to increase capacity and to guarantee redundancy. And ever since that moment, Pete, the two continents have never once been disconnected from one another. And Steve, we should point out that the first cable that burned out uh, was very slow, but this was a larger conductor. Uh, this followed the law of electrical engineering. So th these were uh, cables that actually functioned. Yeah, that's correct? a really good point. You're absolutely right. Yeah. Now, incidentally, somewhere along the way, an electrical expert named Latimer Clark did an experiment in which he had the two transoceanic cables connected to each other at one end, creating a circuit of over 4,000 miles, over which he transmitted crystal clear signals using a silver thimble and a few drops of acid as his battery. So, so much for White House's 2,000-volt disaster. <laughs> That's amazing, right? I mean, we're talking about the difference between these two gigantic 2,000-volt, or whatever it was he said he was going to use, uh, batteries, and a guy who fills a sewing thimble with acid and uses that as his battery. Incredible. Exactly. Also, remember that real long Nevada Telegraph sent in 1864? Yeah. Well, the transatlantic cable bested that record by an order of magnitude shortly thereafter in 1881. Because you see, on May 21st, 1881, the English Standard Version of the New Testament was published in Britain. It was a big deal at the time. It was the first rewrite of the Bible since the 1611 King James Bible. Huh. It, it was transmitted across the transatlantic cable, telegraphed from New York to Chicago, and published in both the Chicago Tribune and the Chicago Times on May 22nd, 1881. At 181,000 words, it was and still is the longest known telegraph sent by Morse Key, and it all crossed field and Gisborne's cable. That's incredible. I had no idea. That is, that is real. That is amazing. 181,000 words. You know, Pete, it's, what's kind of interesting about this is you can still go up to Newfoundland and tour the museum where all these cables landed. And, you know, it's, it's interesting to me that all of those failed and partially completed cables that they had to drop in the middle of these huge storms are still down there. I mean, they're still lying on the bottom of the ocean. You know, evidence of, you know, our need as humans to be connected over great distances, you know, regardless of the cost. 
Some of the technology that they use, like the tar-coated fabric around the cables and the gutta-percha rubber that they use for waterproofing, those are still used in modern submarine cables that operate at terabit speeds. In fact, uh, I actually have samples in my little telecom museum here. When I went out on that cable-laying ship in Singapore, the captain of the ship gave me a handful of samples of the different kinds of cable, and they still use tar-covered cloth and gutta-percha to, to provide the insulation and to make it waterproof and so on. It's it's pretty interesting. Considering these things were conceived at a time when you know the most advanced long-distance communications involved barrels filled with messages that were thrown overboard by passing steamships, and then the barrels would be picked up by local ships, and the messages contained in the barrels would then be tied to the legs of passenger pigeons, which would fly them to a local telegraph office for transmission. So I, I guess that's the, the first form of multimode telecommunications. And Steve, you mentioned the cables being down there. Would that be like a form of engineering archaeology? <laughs> I'll tell you what, Pete, I know you're a scuba diver just like I am. Why don't you check that out and let me know? <laughs> All right. I'll, I'll be waiting for you when you get back. <laughs> Deal. All right. Once again, folks, you know, thanks thanks to Skype, Pete and I are sitting here chatting, uh, you know, from between, uh, between Nevada and Vermont. What a world this is. I have to say science is pretty darn cool. So once again, thank you, Pete. You're welcome, Steve. For the Natural Curiosity Project, I'm Steve Shepard. And I'm Pete Mulvihill. Thank you so much for listening. The mission of the Natural Curiosity Project is to tell the stories of amazing moments in scientific discovery and accomplishment. If there's a story you'd like to hear, or would like to suggest a story, or just want to chat about the amazing world of science, please send a message to steve at shepherdcom.com. That's steve at s-h-e-p-a-r-d-c-o-m-m dot com.